Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 175 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And coming up this week, we have news of a data breach at Cronus. We have news of a fine for Grinder following their data breach. And we have news of a data breach at Gumtree. We also have an update on a report from HMRC on data breaches that it suffered in a 15-month period. And we then move to France, where Clearview AI has been penalised by CNIL over its data processing activities and particularly its facial recognition. We then have news of a data breach at audio provider Sennheiser. And we then travel to Wellington in New Zealand, where the New Zealand Teaching Council has had a data breach. We then travel to South Africa, where... Standard Bank has delayed the notification of a data breach to the regulatory authority. And then there's Tennessee in the USA, where Chattanooga Chamber of Commerce has had a data breach. We then have news of a data breach affecting a Java plugin, which is used by lots of websites which use the Apache web server. The plugin is called Log4j, and this is having such a wide impact that we're asking, is Log4j the cyber equivalent of Cov ID 19. We then travel to South Carolina, where we have an update on the legal action taking place against Blackboard. And then to Canada, where a legal settlement has been reached after the Desjardins data breach. We then have a report from Experian who have highlighted what they see as the main potential areas for data breaches in 2022. And we then travel to India, where rules are being introduced that data breaches have to be reported within 72 hours. And then we travel to Africa and in particular to Rwanda, where Rwanda has introduced new data laws which are based very heavily on GDPR. We then travel to Germany, where a German court has prohibited the transfer of data to CookieBot in the US. And we then have news of rapidly approaching deadlines for the Turkish KVKK data legislation. We then return to the UK and news that the UK government has established a central resource for data storage guidance. And then looking at the UK consultation on the future of UK GDPR, we asked, should UK GDPR introduce a child rights impact assessment in addition to the data protection impact assessment? We then look at a study that suggests that the IAB TCF is not fit for purpose. And then we end this week in Finland, where the Finnish DPA has imposed a record fine after a data breach affecting a healthcare provider. So as always, a real mixed bag for you this week, and we hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. This is our last edition of the GPL Weekly Show for 2021, and so we'd like to thank you for your continued support throughout the year, and wherever you are in the world, wish you and your family a happy and peaceful Christmas period, and a healthy and prosperous 2022. We will be back on Sunday the 9th of January, 2022 and then of course every week as normal during the new year if you have any feedback for us please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com we do read every single piece of feedback we receive and wherever possible we incorporate your suggestions for improvements into the show unfortunately due to the volume of feedback we receive it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually merry christmas and a happy new year from the gdpr weekly show stay safe stay home save lives we begin this week with news that hr platform Kronos has been hit with a ransomware attack revealing that information for many of its high-profile customers may have been accessed 
UKG, Kronos' parent company, said the vital service will be out for several weeks and urged customers to evaluate and implement alternative business continuity protocols related to the affected UKG solutions. In a statement, UKG said it recently became aware of a ransomware incident that has disrupted the Kronos private cloud, which they said houses solutions used by a limited number of our customers. We recognise the seriousness of the issue and have mobilised all available resources to support our customers and are working diligently to restore the affected services, the company said. The statement comes hours after the company posted a message on the Kronos Community Message Board explaining that staff noticed unusual activity impacting UKG solutions using Kronos Private Cloud last Saturday night. This private cloud houses data for UKG Workforce Central, UKG Telestaff, healthcare extensions and banking scheduling solutions. At this time, we are not aware of an impact to UKG Pro, UKG Ready, UKG Dimensions or any other UKG products or solutions which are housed in separate environments and not in the Kronos private cloud. The attack has caused problems in multiple organisations this week with some unable to process their payroll, which obviously is crucial in this week leading up to Christmas. Customers complained that every time they called the help desk, they got a different answer about what was going on and said that some of the Kronos representatives they spoke to did not even know that a ransomware attack had occurred. Kronos work management software is used by dozens of major corporations, local governments and enterprises and here in the UK, one of its main customers is supermarket chain Sainsbury's. If we get any update on this dead breach from either Kronos, Sainsbury's or the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. Data Tilsinet, the Norwegian Data Protection Authority, has fined location-based dating app Grindr €6.5 million, Euros, or £5.4 million, pounds, for selling user data for advertising purposes without consent. The penalty, which is the largest GDPR fine issued by the Norwegian Authority to date, states that Grindr unlawfully shared personal data with users with third parties for advertising marketing purposes. The fine was originally set at £8.2 million, pounds, but as a result of Grindr's cooperation with the Norwegian DPA and quick fixes to remediate the problem, the DPA reduced the fine to £5.4 million. Describing Grindr's infringements as grave, the authority said that user GPS locations, IP addresses, advertising IDs, ages and genders were included in the data shared with third parties. It also concluded that the fact users had been identified as Grindr account holders meant that sexual orientation data had been shared, which is considered a special category under GDPR and requires additional justification for processing. We consider that data revealing the fact that someone is a Grindr user strongly indicates that they belong to a sexual minority, said the Norwegian DPA. Data concerning a person's sexual orientation constitutes special category data that merits particular protection under GDPR. As the consents that Grindr collected were not valid, Grindr could not lawfully share such data. While it not defined a special category of personal data in itself, location data is sensitive and personal. The fact that Grindr has also shared this data unlawfully adds to the severity of the case. The DPA also said that Grindr users were forced into accepting the app's privacy policy in order to access its full set of features and were not asked specifically if they consented to their data being shared with third parties for behavioural advertising. The Norwegian DPA said further orders may yet be issued to Grindr. The Norwegian Consumer Council, which originally filed the complaint against the company, has already claimed the dating act infringed additional provisions of GDPR and has asked the Norwegian DPA to order Grindr to erase the illegally processed data. 
Grindr has a three-week window in which it can launch an appeal to the fine, which may be extended depending on circumstances. Shane Wiley, Chief Privacy Officer at Grindr, said we strongly disagree with the authorities' reasoning, which concerns historical consent practices from years ago, not our current consent practices or privacy policy. Even though the regulator has lowered the fine compared to their earlier letter, the regulator relies on a series of flawed findings, introduces many untested legal perspectives, and the proposed fine is therefore still entirely out of proportion with those flawed findings. We've just received a copy of the letter from the regulator and are analysing the document. The company is considering its options, including the right to appeal the findings to the PVN Appeal Board. If we get any update on this from Grindr, again, we will speak to you in the next episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Satisfied ad site Gumtree.com suffered a data breach after a security researcher revealed that he could access sensitive, personally identifiable data of advertisers simply by pressing the F12 key on his keyboard. When pressing the F12 key in a web browser, the application will open the developer tools console, which allows you to view a website source code, monitor network requests, and view OMS produced by the website. It is considered a primary security measure to make sure that sensitive data is not publicly viewable when using a website, even if you view the website source code. However, Pentest partners discovered that they could see the personally identifiable information of sellers simply by viewing the HTML source code of the advertising shown on Gumtree's website. The site was super leaky. Every advert on the site included the seller's postcode or GPS coordinates, even if the seller requested that the map of their location be hidden. It leaked the seller's email address and their full name was available through a simple idle vulnerability. Gumtree is one of the top 30 websites in the UK, receiving millions of unique visitors every month. As such, this leak may have impacted a large number of advertisers on the site. The investigators found that the HTML source was leaking the following information for registered advertisers. Their full name, their username, their account registration date, their account type, their email address and their post-total GPS coordinates. The consequences of having such data exposed are significant as it would enable those identified users to be attacked by phishing attempts. The site also features an API exclusively used by Gumtree app on iOS. Unfortunately, one of that API's endpoints was vulnerable to an IDOR, Insecure Direct Object References attack, resulting in another leak of full names and other account info. Upon finding this problem on November the 11th, the investigators informed Gumtree of the issue, which partially fixed the problem on November the 16th. After multiple subsequent messages, the platform finally addressed all the problems on December the 6th, 2021. As such, sellers on Gumtree had their personally identifiable information exposed for almost a month. A Gumtree spokesperson said, We were made aware by a user of a security issue affecting our website source code in November 2021. This was resolved within hours of it being brought to our attention. After becoming aware of the above, we were subsequently notified of a further issue with our API for iOS devices. This has also been resolved. In response to these issues, we reported the incident to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, outlining our actions already taken and planned to monitor the issue. These included fixing the vulnerabilities, updating our safety messaging on site and mitigating against future issues. We did not notify our users and are confident that our response to reported issues was timely, appropriate and proportionate. We have communicated proactively with the regulator as these issues came to light and as we are taking remedial actions, we will take any appropriate further action that should be required. I think all we at the GDPR Weekly Show would add to that would be to recommend that any users of Gumtree remain vigilant to potential phishing attacks using the compromised information. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com 
Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, HMRC, has disclosed a total of 17 data breaches over a 15-month period. Between January 2020 and March 2021, more than 3,000 individuals have potentially been affected by the 17 data breaches at HMRC, with the most impactful occurring in June 2020, when the Department used personal information to make unauthorised changes to customer records. Basic personal identifiers, such as name and contact details, were used during the incident, in which potentially affected 1,023 individuals. The report indicates the impact that customers were informed of the incident. Cases in which cyber criminals used personal information to make changes to customer records without proper authorization formed a bulk to the 17 breaches. A total of 11 cases were the nature, each affecting different numbers of individuals, ranging between three in one instance to more than a thousand in another. In almost all cases, the potentially affected individuals were informed following the breach, with the exception of two incidents affecting 48 in 160 individuals respectively, not meeting the threshold for communicating the matter with the customers. In both cases, basic personal information was sought to be involved. However, after further investigation in each, either no evidence of customer impact was found, or the customer data involved was so minimal it didn't meet the ICO standard for disclosure. Arguably the most serious violation affected four individuals in the case involving an HMRC staff member who contravened departmental policy to access internal systems to locate their estranged wife and children. The affected individuals were informed in this case also and the staff member in question was dismissed, HMRC said. Other incidents involved sending one person's bank statements to the wrong person in one case and another involving HMRC breaking open a locked pedestal during an office move which led to the loss of personal content of another individual. We take the protection of our customers' information extremely seriously and continually monitor our systems and data to make sure the information is safe, HMLC said in a statement. In some of these incidents, customer accounts were accessed using personal data that criminals could have obtained through a variety of methods, including breaches of other organisations' security. We have established processes for when a customer record is affected by fraudulent activity by a criminal third party. We deal with millions of customers every year and tens of millions of paper and electronic interactions. Security and privacy are at the heart of our work. We investigate all security incidents, taking immediate action to reduce the possibility of recurrence. HMRC also said that it had been engaging with the ICO, not just in cases where it was legally required to do so. Regular collaboration between HMRC's data protection team and the ICO took place during the year, in addition to HMRC providing consultancy on new policies and legislation. Wishing you a happy Christmas. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you might remember that back in episodes 169 and 99, we discussed the Clearview Artificial Intelligence Facial Recognition Solution. Well, this week, France's privacy watchdog, CNIL, has hit Clearview AI with another penalty. Clearview AI, which has amassed a database of some 10 billion images by scraping selfies off the internet so it can sell an identity matching service to law enforcement, has been hit with an order to delete other people's data. In announcement of breach finding, CNIL also gives Clearview formal notice to stop its unlawful processing and says it must delete user data within two months. The watchdog is acting on complaints against Clearview received since May 2020. Clearview does not have an established base in the EU, meaning its business is open to regulatory action across the EU by any of the bloc's data protection supervisors. So while the CNIL order only applies to data it holds on people from French territories, which CNIL estimates covers several tens of millions of users. More such orders are likely from other EU data protection agencies. CNIL notes that it has sought to work with federal authorities by sharing the results of its investigations, which suggests clearly you'd like to face further orders to stop processing data from authorities in other EU member states and EEA countries that have transposed GDPR into national law. 
This year, clear of these services have already been ruled in breach of privacy rules in Canada, Australia and the UK. Specifically, Senior found that Clearview committed two breaches of GDPR, violating Article 6, the lawfulness of processing by collecting and using biometric data without a legal basis, and breaching a variety of data access rights set out in Articles 12, 15 and 17. The Article 6 breach is because Clearview does not obtain consent from people to use their facial biometrics, nor can it rely on a legitimate interest legal basis for collecting and using this data, given that Senior describes as massive scale and particularly intrusive nature of the processing which Clearview is carrying out. These people whose photographs or videos are accessible on various websites and social networks would not reasonably expect their images to be processed by Clearview AI to feed a facial recognition system that can be used by states for police purposes, Senior said. Senior also said it had received complaints from individuals over a number of difficulties encountered when those individuals tried to exercise their GDPR data access rights. Senior found Clearview is breaching the regulation in a number of ways, such as by limiting individuals' data access rights to twice a year, without justification, or limiting it to data selection during the preceding 12 months, or only responding to certain requests after an excessive number of requests from the same person. Clearview has been ordered to make sure it properly facilitates data subject rights, including complying with requests to delete people's data. If the company does not comply with the senior order, senior warns that it could face further regulatory action, which could include the possibility of a fine. In a statement, Clearview said that it sought to suggest the company is not subject to GDPR. It said Clearview AI does not have a place of business in France or the EU, it does not have any customers in France or the EU, and does not undertake any activities that would otherwise mean it's subject to GDPR. Senior founder, Hone Ton That, said... I grew up in Australia and have long viewed France as a world capital of beauty and excellence. I have deep respect for the country and its people. I created the consequential facial recognition technology known the world over with the purpose of helping to make communities safer and assisting law enforcement by solving heinous crimes against children, seniors and other victims of unscrupulous acts. We only collect public data from the open internet and comply with all standards of privacy and law. I am heartbroken by the misinterpretation by some in France where we do know business of Clearview AI's technology to society. My intentions and those of my company have always been to help communities and their people to live better, safer lives. Audio manufacturer Sennheiser may have exposed customer data of some 28,000 Sennheiser customers. A team of researchers discovered an old AWS cloud account full of customer data belonging to Sennheiser. The account has not been used since 2018, but the data may still contain personal private information that is valuable to online criminals. Researchers Noam Rotem and Ran Lateta of VPN Mentor contacted Sennheiser to disclose the discovery on October 28, 2021. According to the team, Sennheiser was using Amazon Web Services AWS S3 bucket to store data collected from the public. Sennheiser failed to implement any security measures on this S3 bucket, leaving the contents exposed and easily accessible to anyone with a web browser. Researchers were able to identify Sennheiser from the owner of the data due to files with the company's name and Sennheiser employees listed in the bucket's infrastructure. Once we confirmed that Sennheiser was responsible for the data breach, we contacted the company to notify it and offer our assistance. Sennheiser replied a few days later and asked us to give details of our findings. We disclosed the URL of the unsecured server and provided further detail about what it contained. Despite not hearing back from the company again, the server was secured a few hours later. The researchers say the database contained 55 gigabytes of data from 28,000 customers. The data appeared to be collected between 2015 and 2018. It's unclear how the data was collected, but lots of personally identifiable information was exposed, including full names, email addresses, phone numbers, home addresses, names of companies requesting samples, and the number of employees. 
The scope of the exposure is worldwide, but the majority of affected customers were based in North America and Europe. The misconfigured AWS bucket may have helped criminals identify targets for identity theft, tax fraud, insurance fraud and phishing campaigns. We have approached Sennheiser for a statement, but at the time of joining the broadcast we have not heard back from them. If they do provide us with a statement, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay safe, stay home, save lives. To Wellington in New Zealand now, and on the 9th of December 2021, TVNZ alerted the Teaching Council to a spreadsheet of information they discovered on a New Zealand-based online technology forum used mostly by technical experts to solve technical issues. Teaching Council Chief Executive Leslie Hostin said, For clarity, this was not a breach of information relating to our teacher conduct and competence database. It related to general inquiries and correspondence data and contained a short summary of the inquiry. It did not include fulsome material or attachments. However, some of the information was sensitive and for that I am incredibly sorry. The number of people whose privacy was breached is approximately 43 and I'm working with them directly to mitigate the impact of the breach. The Teaching Council has unreservedly apologised and continues to work with the affected parties on the ongoing actions. Communications with the persons affected are private and confidential and it would not be appropriate for the Teaching Council to comment any further. The inadvertent and unintentional breach was the result of a human error rather than a cyber security incident. TVNZ inadvertently discovered the breach by typing specific details into Google that was contained in the spreadsheet. I am grateful to TVNZ for alerting me and the Office of the Privacy Commissioner so urgent action could be taken. I am extremely disappointed that this has happened and I wholeheartedly and unreservedly apologise for this breach of privacy. I have made sure the information can no longer be publicly accessed and we are working urgently to rectify the matter, Hostin said. The Teaching Council is also in contact with the Office of the Privacy Commissioner who has advised that any information arising from this breach could cause a great deal of anxiety to the people affected and that journalists should not be accessing this information or contributing to its more widespread dissemination. Hostin added, Our legal advisers confirmed that TVNZ understands that when a privacy breach occurs, out of fairness to the responsible agency and individuals affected, its best practice is to delete the document as soon as it's discovered and advise the agency concerned. It would be a breach of privacy for any person or organisation who finds information to use the information in any way. The Teaching Council has started conducting an internal investigation into the processes to ensure this doesn't happen again, and details of the investigation will remain confidential. Appropriate comment on the outcome of the internal investigation consistent with the Teaching Council's employment obligations may be made once the investigation is concluded. When its investigation is concluded, the Teaching Council will take all necessary steps to ensure a similar breach does not occur again. The Office of the Privacy Commissioner said it supports the Teaching Council's actions to date, noting they were pleased to see the Council took the necessary steps to minimise and prevent further harm to the individuals concerned. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. To South Africa now, and Standard Bank says it took several days to disclose the latest data breach on its Luxie platform because its immediate focus was to get to the bottom of the issue first and understand how serious it was. Standard Bank informed the public on the 9th of December that homeowners' data was compromised by a data breach on the Luxie platform. The platform is an online property guide that leverages Lightstone data to help South African homeowners manage their properties by providing house values and insights into communities where they are located, amongst other things. Data of up to 745,000 registered properties was compromised. Our immediate focus was on minimising the impact on the data subjects, determining the scope of the compromise and ensuring that the necessary due diligence was given to ensure any hasty steps taken did not impede any legal or criminal investigation. 
Standard Bank said in a short statement. Standard Bank said it and Lightstone informed the information regulator as soon as reasonably possible after discovering the breach. Section 22, paragraph 2 of the Protection of Personal Information Act, POPIA, states that once a bank or other institution has reasonable grounds to believe its data was accessed or acquired by an unauthorised person, it must notify the information regulator and inform people impacted as soon as reasonably possible after the discovery of the compromise. The problem, however, is the Act doesn't specify what as soon as reasonably possible actually means. However, the Act is clear that affected companies may only delay notifying the affected customers if authorities investigating it or the regulator believe that doing so will impede a criminal investigation. Standard Bank said its notification was in line with POPIA. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Tennessee in the USA now, and the personal information of as many as 2,000 members of the Chattanooga Area Chamber of Commerce may have become vulnerable this week after a hack on the organisation. In an email sent to its members, the Chamber advised members to change passwords and update emails following the hack. The Chattanooga Chamber immediately put in place additional preventative measures to protect the organisation as well as member data, the email said. All relevant authorities have been notified. The Chamber's members range from small businesses to local government to the Tennessee Valley Authority. Vice President of Marketing and Communications, Sybil Topol, confirmed the hack to Channel 3 and said the Chamber is investigating it. Tapple said she would not comment on the hack any further, citing an active investigation. Wishing you a happy Christmas! Many systems which use Apache Web Server and Java have found themselves vulnerable to a vulnerability discovered in part of a script called Log4Shell. It's believed that one million attack attempts have been launched in just 72 hours following the critical vulnerabilities disclosure on the 9th of December. It's understood that attempts to exploit systems vulnerable to Log4Shell increased from 40,000 in the immediate 12-hour period following disclosure to 830,000 attempts after just three days. Researchers said the vulnerability is clearly one of the most serious vulnerabilities on the internet in recent years and the potential for damage is incalculable. The security community is still scrambling to fully understand the attack surface for Log4Shell. The number of combinations of how to exploit it to be attacking many alternatives to bypass newly introduced protections, researchers said. It means that one layer of protection is not enough and only multi-layered security posture would provide a resilient protection. Three days after the outbreak, we are summing up what we see until now, which is clearly a cyber pandemic that hasn't seen its peak yet. The industry has banded together to share quick fixes and easy ways to remediate issues in the enterprise, but research has shown that attackers are finding new ways to exploit the vulnerability. The investor data has also looked at corporate exposure to Log4Shell and concluded that a global average of 40% of all networks across the world could be vulnerable to Log4J flaws. Australia and New Zealand were found to be the most exposed at 46.2% of all corporate networks, with Europe close behind with 42.2%, Asia and North America were least exposed at 37.7% and 36.4% respectively. Value-added resellers and the education sectors were found to be particularly vulnerable compared to other industries, with around half of all organisations across those two sectors thought to be affected. Unlike with the top ID19 pandemic in the, if you like, real world, the retail and hospitality sectors are thought to be the least affected, with around a quarter of organisations exposed to Log4J-based attacks. It's very important that anyone using Log4J upgrades to the latest version of the Log4J library, version 2.15.0. Also this week, the US Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, told all federal agencies they had until the 24th of December to patch their systems and make sure they were using this latest version of the library. 
We fully expect that we will return to this story in 2022. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. If you're a regular listener to GDPR Weekly Show, you'll remember us talking about the Blackboard data breach. And if you haven't heard about it before, then do check back to episodes 101, 102, 103, 104, 106, 110, 111 and 158 of the GDPR Weekly Show to get the full history. Well, legal action in association with the data breach took a step forward this week when a court hearing was heard in South Carolina. Following the announcement of the attack and resulting breach, dozens of legal actions were brought in federal court on behalf of putative classes of individuals whose data was provided to Blackboard's customers and managed by Blackboard. The class actions were consolidated into an MDL proceeding in the District of South Carolina. The consolidated class action complaint in the MDL asserted an array of common law and statutory claims per a procedure the court developed for dealing with Rule 12b, Paragraph 6, Motion Practice, the court's October 19th order considered only the plaintiff's negligence, negligence per se, gross negligence and unjust enrichment claims. Nearly half of the court's order focused on choice of law issues. On the negligence claims, the court explained that under South Carolina choice of law principles, the law of the place of the plaintiff's alleged injury controlled. The court reasoned that the place of the alleged injury was not necessarily the domicile of the plaintiffs, where the plaintiffs presumably experienced their injuries, that was instead where the last event necessary for Blackboard to be potentially liable in tort took place. Since that event was the data being accessed by a third party, the court determined that the plaintiff's injury occurred where the breach occurred. But since the court not, could not determine where the breach occurred, it defaulted to applying South Carolina law because South Carolina was both the forum and the only Blackboard location specifically enumerated in the pleading stage proceedings. The court determined South Carolina law should apply to the unjust enrichment claim as well, because South Carolina was the place where the benefit of enrichment was allegedly received by Blackboard. The court began its discussion of the merits of negligence and gross negligence claims, and for both of these claims focused almost exclusively on the duty element. The court found that Blackboard only the plaintiffs a duty to protect their personally identifiable information under South Carolina law based primarily on the contractual relationship between Blackboard and its customers, who again were not the plaintiffs, but entities the plaintiffs were associated with. In so doing, the court relied primarily on a 2019 decision from the South Carolina Supreme Court, which held that the contractual relationship between the employer and the drug testing laboratory supported the imposition of a duty of care owed by the laboratory to employees who were subject to testing. Like torts in certain other data breach cases, the court found that this duty extended in the prevention of cyber attacks because, although these attacks were criminal acts or third parties, the plaintiffs alleged that Blackboard knew of the risk of cyber attacks but nevertheless failed to take adequate measures to guard against those attacks. The court ended its discussion of the negligence claims by largely rejecting Blackboard's argument that the plaintiffs had failed to allege negligence-related damages and concluding that the plaintiffs had adequately stated claims for both negligence and gross negligence. The plaintiffs based their negligence per se claims on Blackboard's purported violations of three federal statutes. The Healthcare Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, HIPPA, the Federal Trade Commission Act, and the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, COPPA. The court found that South Carolina law required that the plaintiffs show that each statute was designed to protect a particular individual or group of people and that plaintiffs are members of that group. The court found that the plaintiffs have failed to make this showing for each of the three statutes in issue 
and accordingly dismissed the plaintiff's negligence per se claims. In so doing, the court noted that these statutes were never focused on the prevention of data breaches. The court concluded its order with a discussion of plaintiff's unjust enrichment claim. In analysing that claim, the court focused on the indirectness of the relationship between the plaintiffs and Blackboard to conclude that the plaintiffs had not alleged that they conferred any benefit on Blackboard as their unjust enrichment claim required. Taken as a whole, the court's order is both helpful and in some ways unhelpful for data breach defendants. The court's discussion of a duty to protect personally identifiable information is unhelpful as it appears to expand the circumstances under which a contractual relationship that does not include putative class members can trigger such a duty. But the court's discussion of the duty issue was of course specific to South Carolina law and may therefore be limited in its future reach. The court's discussion of the plaintiff's negligence per se and unjust enrichment claims, in contrast, provide data breach defendants with fodder for defeating such claims in the future. And it's based on broader common law principles likely to govern negligence per se and unjust enrichment claims in other jurisdictions. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Canada now, and a class action lawsuit against Canadian financial services firm Desjardins has provisionally settled for $201 million Canadian dollars after a 2019 data breach exposed to personal information of 10 million customers. Desjardins, a financial management firm based in Lévis, Quebec, disclosed the data security incident in 2019. The breach, which spanned two years, was a result of unauthorised and illegal access of data by a malicious employee, the firm said. Desjardins initially claimed that 2.9 million people were affected, but later revised this figure to 4.2 million. It eventually transpired, however, that 9.7 million people were affected. On December the 16th, the plaintiffs issued a press release confirming that a settlement figure has been reached. It said, The settlement agreement provides a compensation for loss of time related to the personal information breach, as well as compensation for identity theft. In addition, the settlement agreement provides that all class members who have not yet registered for Equifax's credit monitoring service offered by Desjardins can register and will thus be able to attain at no cost to Equifax coverage for five years and the extension by at least five years of the other protective measures implemented by Desjardins following the breach. The settlement agreement needs to be approved by the Superior Court of Quebec on a date to be determined in 2022. If it passes, class members can receive compensation totaling up to $200,852,500 Canadian dollars. Attorneys for the class action said its members were very pleased with the settlement amount, which they said is timely and fair compensation. A report into the breach by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada concluded the investigation into the breach at Desjardins sheds light on the risk of internal threats, whether they are intentional or not. The OPC stresses the importance of vigilance and a holistic approach to addressing and mitigating the impact of such threats. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from the GDPR Weekly Show. Stay safe, stay home, save lives. In a far-reaching report, Experian has identified what it expects to be the five top data breach trends in 2022. First trend it sees is in digital assets such as cryptocurrencies and non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, will become greater targets of attack as society accepts them as legitimate parts of the financial and technological landscape. The second threat it sees is natural disasters, and it says natural disasters will prompt people to donate more to aid organisations online, resulting in both donors and people in distress becoming more prone to phishing attempts from groups disguised as charitable organisations. To complicate things further, experience said unreliable global supply chains will make the sourcing of emergency goods more difficult, which will provide another opportunity for online thieves to take advantage. Responding to the COVID crisis, 
it sees remote workers has also been likely to increase in opportunities for data theft in 2022. It said remote workers will be targets of data thieves who are looking to hack into businesses and institutions. The report said that because home wireless networks are more vulnerable than many business VPNs, companies will need to focus more on security compliance from their employees. Employees will need training on matters like how to spot a phishing attempt or how to respond to a ransomware attack, according to the report. The next category it sees is physical infrastructure landmarks, such as electrical grids, dams and transportation networks. It believes all of these will be greater targets by hackers, both foreign and domestic to the US, who will attempt to steal some of the trillions of dollars that Congress has approved under the Biden infrastructure bill. Experience said that these bad actors will attempt to steal during the process of fund disbursement using a variety of scams from phishing to CEO fraud. The sums are so large and their distribution involves so many institutions and processes, from treasury vendors to banks to individual contractors, that hackers will be probing for weaknesses in the money supply chain, Experience said. And the final threat they highlighted is online gambling scams. It said that as online sports betting becomes legalised in more states, phishing scams will target online gamblers, especially those who are new to online betting. And as online gambling becomes more legal, online scammers will be harder to detect. Experience predicts that common forms of theft will include gambling using stolen credit card info, hijacking an account either through hacking or correctly guessing a password, or impersonating a legitimate online casino. Experian also noticed that as cryptocurrency becomes more popular in online gambling and more sites incorporate it for ease of use, hackers will attempt to break into digital wallets. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To India now, and the House Joint Panel has decided that a data breach will need to be reported in 72 hours. A report of the Joint Committee of Parliament on the Personal Data Protection Bill tabled in Lok Saha and Rajasaha on Thursday as recommended that social media companies which do not act as intermediaries be treated as content publishers and held accountable for the content they host. A mechanism may be devised in which social media platforms which do not act as intermediaries will be held responsible for the content from unverified accounts on their platforms. Once application for verification is submitted with necessary documents, the social media intermediaries must mandatorily verify the account, the committee said. The committee's recommendation, however, has left stakeholders seeking more clarity. Some of the view that the provision takes away the protection to social media intermediaries if they moderate content in any way. Some others believe it needs to be clarified either by the government or through judicial interpretation that social media platforms have been kept out of the purview of intermediaries. The bill was introduced two years ago, back in the Lok Sabha, by former Union Minister Ravi Sankar Prasad on December 11, 2019, and immediately referred to the Standing Committee on December 16th. The committee's report was presented in the Lok Sabha by the chairperson P.P. Chowdhury and laid in the Raja Sabha by Congress MP Jara Ramesh. Fixing a deadline for the bill's implementation in a phased manner and to allow stakeholders sufficient transition time, the committee has said that the Data Protection Authority commence operation within six months, registration of data fiduciaries starts within nine months and the appellate tribunal begins work not later than 12 months after the notification of the Act. Overall, it said, any and all provisions of the bill will be implemented within 24 months. Pointing out it's impossible to distinguish between personal and non-personal data when mass data is collected or transported, the committee has said there should be only one DPA dealing with privacy and personal data, as well as non-personal data. To avoid contradiction, confusion and mismanagement, a single administration and regulatory body is necessitated, it said. 
In the case of a data leak, the DPA should be notified within 72 hours of the company becoming aware of the breach. The DPA shall then take into account the personal data breach and the severity of harm that may be caused to the person whose data has been leaked and accordingly ask the company to report it and take appropriate remedial measures. The chairperson and members of the DPA should be appointed by the union government based on the recommendation of a selection committee chaired by the cabinet secretary. Other members of the committee would be the Attorney General of India, the IT and law secretaries, an independent expert, and a director each from the ITT and the IIM, which will be nominated by the centre. If the data fiduciary fails to take prompt and appropriate action following the breach, does not register with the DPA, does not conduct data audits as required under the proposed Act, or does not appoint a data protection officer as per the rules, it could attract a penalty of up to 2% of the total worldwide turnover of the preceding financial year. Further, if a company violates the provisions of processing personal data or data of children, or transfers data outside India against the prescribed rules, it should be fined up to 4% of its total worldwide turnover of the preceding financial year. For government departments, however, the liability in case of data breach will not be directly placed on the head of departments. In case of any offence under the Act, the head of the government department will first conduct an in-house probe to determine the personal officer responsible for the said violation, and only then will liability be decided. A jail term of up to three years, or a fine of up to two million rupees, or both, should be imposed if a person intentionally and without consent of a data fiduciary or data processor re-identifies personal data which had previously been de-identified. It's notable that, of course, a lot of these procedures and penalties are in line with what's already there in GDPR, so it's good to see, yet again, India adapting parts of GDPR for its own purposes, but keeping to the core principles of GDPR. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. To Rwanda in Africa now, and on the 13th of October 2021, almost two years after the adoption of a bill on data protection, Rwanda's first data protection legislation, Law Number 058-2021, relating to the protection of personal data and privacy, was enacted. It entered into force on the 15th of October 2021. The data protection law is the latest step taken by Rwanda to achieve a knowledge-based economy, and it is within the framework of digital-related policies defined in several stages over the last two decades. Rather like GDPR, Rwanda's law has extraterritorial scope. The data protection law applies to controls and processes located in Rwanda, but also to controls and processes with no local presence, so long as they process the data of individuals located in Rwanda. African countries are increasingly departing from the rules set out in the now-repealed European Union Copyright Directive 1995, according to which the law would apply to controllers without a local presence only where they use local processing equipment. The latest African countries that have enacted data protection laws tend to adopt the extraterritorial approach similar to GDPR. This is the case for Benin, Uganda, Egypt, Kenya and Nigeria. And in addition, Cape Verde, the first African country to have passed the Data Protection Act in 2001, had initially adopted the copyright directive's approach and in its 2021 amendment changed it to territorial scope based on the location of data subjects. The Rwandan data protection law goes further than GDPR and it does not limit its extraterritorial scope to processing activities related to the offering of goods or services and the monitoring of data subjects' behaviour taking place in Rwanda. As a consequence, organisations with no presence or equipment in Rwanda but that process small or large volumes of personal data selected from individuals located in Rwanda would need to comply with the law. This rule applies to both data controllers and data processors. In this respect, data processors are directly liable under Rwandan law and are subject to almost the same obligations and same sanctions as data controllers. They should therefore be proactive in seeking to comply with Rwandan law 
beyond the instructions of the controller on behalf of whom they process the data. Under RAND and Data Protection Law, there are eight legal bases for processing personal data, namely consent, contractual necessity, legal obligation, protection of the data subjects right to interest, duty carried out in the public interest or in the course of an official authority, performance of the duties of a public entity, legitimate interest of the data controller or third-party recipient, and research purposes subject to authorization by the relevant institution. So again, very similar to GDPR. Consent must be provided on an opt-in basis and for a specified purpose. With regard to children under the age of 16, consent must be obtained from the children's guardian. Again, very similar to GDPR and indeed the Children's Code or the Age Appropriate Design Code. Rwanda is one of the 17 African countries out of 32 which have a data protection legal framework which allows data processing on the basis of controllers' legitimate interest. Amongst the countries that do not recognise such legitimate interest are eight member states of the Economic Community of West African States. Their exclusion of legitimate interest is in line with the provisions of the 2010 ECOWAS Supplementary Act on Personal Data Protection, which is the only binding regional data protection law in Africa. Where data subjects are concerned, under the Rwandan Data Protection Law, data subjects can access several rights, including the right to access, erase and rectify their data, as well as the right to object to processing, to restrict processing, to data portability and information. In addition, data subjects also have the right to designate an heir to their personal data. Pursuant to this right, even though personal data is not subject to succession, when a deceased data subject has left a will, the heir is given full restricted rights relating to the processing of personal data held by the controlled order processor. This, of course, is a departure from GDPR, because GDPR only deals with living people and once you die, your rights under GDPR are terminated. The other thing of note is that Rwanda is one of the few African jurisdictions, along with Chad and the Ivory Coast, which has decided to legislate on data protection without creating a separate data protection authority. With regard to Rwanda, the supervisory authority is the National Cyber Security Authority. Rwanda also has sector-specific regulatory authorities, such as the Rwanda Utility Regulatory Authority, responsible for overseeing sector-specific compliance. The competent authority may, in conjunction with the supervisory authority, put in place other sector-specific regulations governing protection of personal data and privacy. With the supervisory authority already in place, knowledge exchange between the different functions of the authority, which are interdependent, especially with regard to data security, are expected to be smoother than if there was a separate data protection authority. Further, the supervisory authority will be able to issue its mandatory and optional regulations more promptly. This will allow controllers and processors to have sufficient information in order to be compliant with the new law before it becomes enforceable in 2023. In terms of accountability, under the data protection law, controllers and processors must log their processing activities for the purpose of monitoring and auditing. The processing activities concerned are at least the collection, alteration, access, disclosure and transfer, combination and erasure of personal data. In addition, controllers and processors are required to record their processing activities in a way that's comparable to recording obligations set out in Article 30 of GDPR. The Data Protection Law also imposes the appointment of a Data Protection Officer, DPO, where the legal entity's core activities consist of processing personal data with regular and systematic monitoring of data subjects on a large scale or where sensitive data is processed on a large scale. Further use of information is provided in the Data Protection Law. In terms of data breaches, the Data Protection Law includes a breach notification requirement stricter than GDPR because under Rwandan law, a breach has to be reported by the controller and the processor to the Data Protection Authority 
within 48 hours of them becoming aware of a data breach. The controller is also required to disclose the breach to data subjects unless the breach is unlikely to result in high risk to their rights and freedoms. The controller must inform the data subjects after having become aware of the breach. No notification time frame is provided in terms of hours or days, however a time frame could later be defined by regulation issued by the supervising authority. Furthermore, the data protection law imposes the obligation to conduct the data protection impact assessment where a processing activity is likely to result in a high risk to the rights and freedoms of an individual, including in the case of profiling or large-scale processing of sensitive data. Lastly, like the vast majority of African countries, the Rwandan law provides the obligation to register with the supervisor authority prior to processing personal data. This registration obligation applies to both the controller and the processor. As part of the registration application, international data transfers should be described. The issuance of a registration certificate takes no longer than 30 days from receipt of the application and would cover cross-border transfers. The registration certificates are to have an expiry date to be determined by the regulator in due course. In terms of sanctions, penalties are similar to GDPR, although the maximum administrative fine amounts to 1% of the global turnover of the entity, and the maximum criminal fine amounts to 5% of the annual turnover of the entity, it's unclear in terms of the criminal fine whether that applies just to turnover in Rwanda or worldwide turnover. Other sanctions for offences include, amongst others, up to 10 years imprisonment and cancellation of the registration certificate, which would in effect be a ban on processing personal data. And so it's interesting that, yet again, we have a country here in Rwanda which has adopted a set of laws very closely based on GDPR. So once again, establishing GDPR as a worldwide standard for data protection. Wishing you a happy Christmas. On December the 1st this year, in a much-noted decision, the Administrative Court of Weisbaden handed down a preliminary injunction dealing with international data transfers. In this specific case, there was no data transfer mechanism in place, and thus the court ordered the defendant to stop using a cookie consent management platform. Contrary to some media reports, the court did not rule that the US-based consent management solutions or cookies do not be used anymore. The injunction can still be appealed, and could also be lifted in the main proceedings. In this specific case, the defendant used the CookieBot consent management platform to store the cookie preferences of its end users. The consent management platform processes data such as each end user's IP addresses and a cookie key. CookieBot is based in Denmark but uses a US-based hosting provider, Akimi Technologies, in connection with the CookieBot CMP and thus transfers the CMP data to Akimi Technologies. So just what did the Administrative Court of Weisbaden decide? Well, the following points were decided in the preliminary injunction. The court ordered the defendant to refrain from using the CookieBot CMP based on the specific facts in this case. The court found that personal data is processed when using the CookieBot CMP. The full IP address is regarded as personal data. It is irrelevant whether the IP address is only processed where the CookieBot CMP is open for the first time, as the collection and transfer of the IP address is already processing of personal data under GDPR. Further, the cookie key, which is an ID which also stores the cookie consent decision of the end user, as well as a version of the cookie banner, the timestamp of the cookie consent decision and the end user's location, is also considered to be personal data. The end user is identifiable due to the combination of the cookie key and the IP address. The court held that the transfer of the CMP data to Akimi Technologies Inc. was an unlawful data transfer to a third country in the specific case. There was no data transfer mechanism under Chapter 5 of GDPR and no derogation under Article 49 of GDPR. The defendant did not provide sufficient evidence that standard contractual clauses were concluded between CookieBot and Akimi Technologies. The defendant only provided a standard contractual clauses template. Further, the derogations in Article 49 of GDPR did not apply 
and in particular the defendant did not obtain consent for the third country transfers or inform end users of the data connected to the transfer, Article 49, Paragraph 1, Subparagraph A of GDPR. The court also found that the defendant, as the website provider, was the data controller for the selection of the personal data and the transfer to the Chimey Technologies Inc. by integrating the Trukybox CMP in its website. So if that was what the court decided, what did it not decide? Contrary to some media reports, the Administrative Court of Wiesbaden did not decide that either the use of the CMP providers that transfer the end user's tricky consent data to a third country is always unlawful, or, going even further, that tricky providers in a third country cannot be used anymore. The facts in this case were quite specific. It was that there was no evidence that the standard contractual clauses were in place. If they had been, then would the court have made the same decision? We don't know, is the simple answer. Although, personally, I feel it's unlikely. I think the court would have found that the data transfer was probably was legitimate. It's important to note as well that the Administrative Court of Wiesbaden decision is only a preliminary judgment that the defendant can appeal. Now, whether they will appeal or not, of course, we don't know at the moment, so we will return to this case, doubtless, at some point in 2022. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Turkey now, and the Turkish State of Protection Law, which was adopted in March 2016 and entered into force in April 2016. Amongst other things, Article 16 of the law includes a provision requiring registration for all data controllers subject to this law in a data controller registry called Verbis. And additionally, data controllers located outside of Turkey are required to appoint a representative. The deadline for compliance with these obligations has been postponed several times, but is now set for December the 31st, 2021. So in case you're wondering, is your organisation subject to the law, which is called KVKK? Article 2 of KVKK defines the scope of the Turkey Data Protection Regulation. KVKK applies to natural and legal persons processing personal data of Turkish data subjects. The law does not distinguish between public and private bodies. The procedures and principles laid down are generally applicable to all organisations. Exemptions apply only for private households, official statistics with anonymised data, processing by judicial authorities and processing for public order. So in terms of data controller registry verbis and verbis representative, a data controller according to Article 4, Paragraph 1 of KVKK is a legal or natural person determining the purpose and means of processing personal data. Article 16 of KVKK stipulates that all Turkish and non-Turkish data controllers must register in the data controller registry verbis before starting to process personal data. Only certain professions like notary publics, law firms and accounting firms, trade unions and political parties are exempt. For non-Turkish data controllers, there is no threshold due to turnover or number of employees, meaning that even small non-Turkish organisations are subject to KVKK. The verbis registration requires entering the company's processing activities with the data categories, the categories of data subjects, the purposes of the processing, legal basis, data transfers, technical and organisational measures and retention period. Any changes to these records have to be made public through Verbis within seven days of the change. This registry is to be made public under the supervision of the Turkish Data Protection Authorities. For non-Turkish controllers, and similar to Article 27 of GDPR, the Turkish Data Protection Regulation contains a provision which is only applicable on foreign data controllers requiring them to appoint a representative in Turkey in addition to the Verbis registration. Other than under GDPR, there is no obligation for data processors to appoint a representative. However, it is important to note that the applicability of KVKK does not depend on the amount of data processed of Turkish data subjects. 
So being a B2B service provider with limited sales activity in Turkey does not per se exclude you from KVKK applicability. The representative will be the point of contact for the Turkish State Protection Authority and for data subjects and handles communication with these stakeholders, just like the UK data agent or the EU data agent here in the EU and UK. The fact that a representative is appointed by a company has to be communicated to the Turkish State subject when selecting its personal data to comply with information obligations. The usual way to imply those obligations is to include the wording in the privacy policy. Further, the representative conducts the registration for verbis. The prevailing legal opinion considers a registration by a foreign controller itself as impossible. At least from a practical point of view, this makes sense because the attempt by a foreign data controller to self-register would be as if one had declared their own non-compliance with the requirement to appoint a representative to the Turkish State Protection Authority. In GDPR and UK GDPR, you'll find an exemption for the appointment of representative for public bodies, meaning, for example, universities and government institutions don't have to appoint a representative according to Article 27 of UK GDPR. However, for KVKK, it doesn't distinguish between private and public bodies, but only contains exemptions for preventive, protective and intelligence activities by public bodies. The process of appointing a data controller representative in Turkey is more complicated than under GDPR because the appointment needs to be signed and the signature needs to be notarised and apostilled. An end-to-end digital process is not possible. The deadline for verbis registration and therefore also the appointment of a data controller representative by non-Turkish organisations, as we say, ends on December the 31st this year. In terms of the data subject rights under KVKK, when reaching out to the Turkish market, foreign data controllers should also be prepared to handle data subject rights in compliance with KVKK. Article 10 of KVKK obliges data controllers to inform the data subject about the processing activities when collecting personal data. This can be done in the privacy policy. The controller must inform about its identity, its representative in Turkey, the purposes of processing, the data transfers, the legal basis, and about the data subject rights granted by KVKK. Besides the information right, Turkey's data subjects have the following data subject right. The right to access, the right to rectification, the right to be forgotten, the right to restrict processing, the right to object to processing through automated decision-making, and the right to compensation for damages. For the procedure of the data subject request, a communique has been published by the Turkish State Protection Authority. The request made by the data subject must include their name, their physical address, their Turkish citizen number, a contact method, either email, fax number or telephone, and of course the subject of the data subject request. The answer to the controller must contain the same information. For a violation of disclosure obligation, the fines are up to 270,000 Turkish lira. However, for violations of the registration obligation in Verbis, significantly higher fines of up to 2,700,000 Turkish lira may be imposed. Administrative fines in Turkey are re-evaluated every year. The increase from 2021 to 2022 is 36.2%. This should be kept in mind when working on compliance with KVKK. Again, though, it's good to see how KVKK is modelled on GDPR, and so yet again emphasising how GDPR is becoming a global standard for data protection. Back to the UK now, and the UK government has provided a useful web page which provides links to all of the main information you need about storing volumes of data. The web page is available at https colon slash slash www.gov.uk forward slash government forward slash publications forward slash secure hyphen connected hyphen places hyphen smart hyphen cities hyphen guidance hyphen collection 
forward slash designing hyphen your hyphen connected hyphen place hyphen to hyphen protect hyphen it hyphen data. We will also be putting a link to this resource on the GDPR Weekly Show website, which you can find at www.gdprweeklyshow.com. Stay in. Stay safe. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, you'll know that we've mentioned several times about the UK government consultation on the future of GDPR in the UK, which closed on the 19th of November. But this week, we've had the first hints of what might be included in such a review, with a suggestion that, in addition to the need to carry out a data protection impact assessment, a DPIA, when you're introducing a new process, you should also carry out a child rights impact assessment, a CRIA, before you commence the processing. And we don't yet know for sure what's going to be in the child rights impact assessment, but we can assume that it will include the things which are in the children's code or the age-appropriate design code. We hope you had a follow-up on this in more detail in January for you. But in the meantime, what are your thoughts on the idea of introducing yet another assessment, a child rights impact assessment? Please do let us know. We always welcome your feedback. You can send your feedback to feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com and we look forward to hearing your ideas and comments. Want to ask GDPR questions live? Come and join our GDPR surgery on Clubhouse, Thursday, 4pm UK time. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you might remember that back in episodes 147, 149 and 169, we've talked about the IAB framework around contextual advertising. When new research examining what happens after internet users in Europe land on an ad-supported website and express their privacy choices using that flagship industry consent management platform, the IAB's Transparency and Consent Framework, has highlighted a number of issues. Last month, the IAB Europe announced it's expecting to be found in breach of the EU's GDPR, although the IAB sought to suggest that a few tweaks will suffice to fix problems identified by the Belgian Data Protection Authority. Despite all these issues, the IAB has continued to argue that the TCF is working as intended for the close to 800 ad tech vendors who are sought to be participating in the system, loudly rejecting criticism of it. The IAB CEO, Townsend Fion, for example, poo-pooed criticism earlier this month, saying that none of this tracking happens if the user says no. However, the new study throws doubt on the claim that if a user says no to tracking and behavioural ads via the AAB's TCF, that the ad tech industry respectfully falls into line. A key piece of this research examined how the ad tech ecosystem responds to user signals that request only basic, i.e. non-tracking based ads, to examine how ad vendors respond when users say no to personalised ads. Here, the researchers found evidence to suggest that many ad tech vendors continue to track and profile internet users when they've explicitly said they don't want tracking-based ads. While a number of earlier studies have found problems with how publishers in the EU have implemented cookie consent, such as tracking cookies being dropped prior to asking a site visitor for their permission, this new research, carried out by ad tech researcher Adalytics, aims to zero in on the TCF framework itself. Problematic data flows after that implicate the ad tech industry itself, and the claims it makes for TCF as a flagship compliance tool because it suggests the framework fails to accurately reflect and actually respect users' privacy choices once they're passed to ad partners. Adalytics says the findings suggest that many major ad tech vendors continue to track and profile EU users even when an EU user has explicitly objected. 
that the TCF strings that were designed by AAB Europe do not appear to be honoured or passed directly by many ad tech vendors, that some ad tech vendors may not be able to demonstrate that they obtained user data with user consent, which may expose them to contractual compliance, investor shareholder disclosure and regulatory risks, and in many instances it's impossible for users to support media creators by allowing basic ads, whilst disallowing tracking and behaviour profiling to protect their own privacy. Although it's important to note that, as with any study, there are limitations. In this case, the researchers used Chrome developer tools to observe what was happening. Given that any processing being done on ad tech companies' own servers isn't verifiable, it was by external research. Understanding the full picture of what's done with people's data once the ad tech ecosystem gets its hands on it is difficult. But that's the very reason, of course, that this contrasts with GDPR, because GDPR, by its very nature, requires accountability, transparency and security when processing people's data. Examples cited in the study of ad tech vendors appearing to override or ignore TCF signals denying tracking include a visitor with a Belgian IP address to a popular local news website, which provides consent to basic ads only, and only consents to ads from Google, so they're explicitly rejecting personalised ad profiling. Yet who on checking Chrome developer tools for network HTTP requests, observes HTTPS requests sent to ib.adnx.com, a domain owned by Abnexus, which responds by dropping a cookie called UUID2 set for three months. Given that this user objected to personalised ads and created a personalised profile, only providing consent to Google, and the fact that these consent choices were directly included in the HTTP request to adnx.com, it's not clear why the app Nexus server responded by setting a persistent advertising-related cookie in the user's browser. In another example, a user with a French IP address visits the news website lemonade.fr and once again, despite not consenting to any cookies or purposes offered in the consent banner, they see HTTPS requests being sent to id5-sync.com which responds by setting a cookie called ID5 for three months and triggering a 302 HTTP redirect to sync data with a smart ad server. The study details numerous other examples of unexpected data flows and syncing being observed after the user was deliberately asked not to be tracked. The findings further highlight the scale of the problem of ad fraud and where the IAB Europe's TCF framework is concerned suggests it offers merely a veneer of illegal compliance because it isn't actually capable of doing what it's claimed to be doing on the tin. When we put these findings to IAB Europe, they responded by saying, When implemented correctly, the TCF allows internet users to communicate to websites and their vendors that they do not wish to have their data collected or processed. All vendors that are TCF participants are expected to comply with their commitments under the TCF, including not processing any data when the user is rejected or objected to it. TCF is mainly a policy and technical standard that companies can implement in their commercial relationships, but using TCF does not alleviate any vendor from the responsibility to fully comply with GDPR. While it is the responsibility of the vendor to make sure they are applying the TCF appropriately, IAB Europe provides support to make sure the TCF is implemented correctly and addresses non-compliance. In September, we launched the TCF Vendor Compliance Programme that enables us to monitor vendor compliance and enforce non-compliance. This includes enforcing against the setting of non-essential cookies without users' consent or the processing of users' personal data without a legal basis, verifying the duration of cookies used by vendors and ensuring users' choices are afforded faithfully. Regarding the Belgian DPA's probe of TCF, it said it cannot comment further on an ongoing investigation. 
we will work with relevant authorities to address any issues raised with the TCF once the ruling is finalised, the IAB said. Of course, we have to await that ruling from the Belgian DPA, but whenever we receive that in 2022, we will, of course, bring you an update right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. And we end this week, and indeed this year, with a story from Finland. The Finnish Data Protection Authority has now issued its decision in the data breach case involving Vastamo Oi and has ordered a fine of €608,000, which is now the largest GDPR fine imposed in Finland. To give a bit of background, in November 2018, a data security vulnerability in the systems of Vastamo Oi, a major provider of cytotherapy services in Finland, led to the theft of the names, personal identity numbers and patient medals of at least 40,000 patients by an unknown hacker. The core reason for the breach was negligent security and data protection practices. An extremely sensitive database was maintained with root-level access from the open internet without any firewall or amazingly any form of password protection. The information stolen and published by the hacker is of course extremely sensitive since it contains detailed patient records relating to the mental health of individual patients. The Finnish Data Protection Authority determined that Vastamo, as data controller, breached its obligations under GDPR as a result of the following deficiencies. Not implementing adequate and reasonable technical and organisational measures to protect highly sensitive personal data and thus not implementing secure processing of personal data. Intentionally failing to inform the Data Protection Authority and the data subjects of the personal data breach without undue delay by the time Vastamo became aware of the data breach. Not documenting the data breach sufficiently and not fulfilling the obligations of a data protection impact assessment on a sufficient level. Although a data protection impact assessment at DPIA had been carried out, the Data Protection Authority deemed that DPIA did not consider the nature, extent, context and purpose of the processing adequately, did not identify the resources used for the processing sufficiently, and did not describe if and how the personal data, its storage times and the parties processing the data were recorded. The controller had also failed to assess the proportionality and necessity of the processing-related actions and whether the data subject rights had been adequately secured. Finally, the controller had failed to properly assess the risks caused by the processing. So what can everyone learn from this? Well, not surprisingly, while processing highly sensitive personal data that falls under Article 9 of GDPR, the data controller must pay careful attention to the principles for processing sensitive categories of data under GDPR, ensure the -the state-of-the-art technical and organisational measures to protect such personal data are implemented and maintained, be prepared to document and report potential data breaches, and execute and maintain detailed data protection impact assessments. As always, if you're in a situation where you need to carry out a data protection impact assessment and would like any help with it, please don't hesitate to contact us using the contact details which are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com The GDPR Weekly Show is an InsurerT production. Until next time, bye-bye.